Romans chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 12 today. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we gain by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks a blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever taken the time and studied your own genealogy? Where do you come from? Who came before you? I know, I've been told at least, that next Christmas for Luann, I'm getting her one of those tests where you send in a swab and they tell you exactly what percentage of each different nationality or whatever you want to call it are. So where did you come from? Where did your people before you come from there's a tv show out there i don't know if you've ever seen it called who do you think you are it's a show that follows uh, these celebrities as they go and research where they came from it's a fun thing to watch see as they get to know things they didn't know before who would you be related to if we followed your lineage backwards recently my mother was able to go to jeromesville ohio as the honorary person in the parade because our great something or other was Jean-Baptiste Jerome, the founder of Jeromesville. That is my claim to fame. If you ever go to Jeromesville, Ohio, think our pastor, his great whatever, he founded this great land. As we consider our faith, we also have a very rich heritage that we get to discover Paul has been arguing throughout Romans and up to this point that righteousness can only be obtained by faith. And to show this, he makes an appeal to our lineage. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, who believed God. 
And it was counted or reckoned to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 plays a huge part of what Paul is talking about here. What does it mean that Abraham's faith was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness? Paul will progressively be making an argument here. He will deny that Abraham is different than anyone else. He'll show that through scripture that Abraham was justified by faith alone. That this justification is a gracious act of God. That in doing this, God is reckoning Abraham and applying to him and giving him, I should say, forgiveness of sins. So as we consider this, as we look at our text, we'll see three things. First, we're going to consider the righteousness of Abraham. Second, we're going to see the crediting of righteousness. And third and finally, we'll see the sign of righteousness. The righteousness of Abraham, the crediting of righteousness, and the sign of righteousness. Let us begin by looking at the righteousness of Abraham. Paul, as he often does when switching to kind of a new section uses a rhetorical question uh, as a transition. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? He points to Abraham. We all know who Abraham is, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's go praise the Lord, right? We, I sang that song growing up. I'm sure you sung it. Before it's all said and done, your left arm and right arm and arms going all over the place. But what does it mean that we're sons of Abraham, that he is our father? It says he's our father according to the flesh. But it also says he's our father spiritually. There are both, we are both spiritual and physical descendants. All who are in Christ then are sons and daughters of Abraham. Well, if we're sons of Abraham, if we're daughters of Abraham, what does that mean for us? Well, what was Abraham? How was Abraham made right before God? How was he justified? Was Abraham, in essence, any different than us? And this is no idle question. This is no uh, unimportant question. Paul is asking this question because the Jewish community was saying, yes, Abraham was good enough, and because he was good enough, God called him righteous. They stressed the importance of his pious works. They would even go as far to say as his works were the basis for his relationship with God. But Paul says, no, no, no. Abraham has no place to boast before God. He cannot boast because he plays no part in his being made right with God. And to show this, Paul points to Genesis 15:6, as we have said, so it is written, or so scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is the first time in all of scripture 
that we have this interesting word, believe. The first time. And the first time we have the word believe, it is tied to the gaining of righteousness. Interesting. It's one of the few times in all the Old Testament that these two concepts are joined together. His faith was counted, was credited, was reckoned, whatever you want to use, to him as righteousness. This is a righteousness that was alien and foreign to him. It was not his inherently. His relationship with God, his belief in God, his faith in God, establishes this relationship. It wasn't his obedience. It wasn't his own works, which he, gained, he did and brought before God. It was faith. Paul, once again, is drilling it in our head. It's not about what you do. Why do you think Paul is still going on on this? Because there is a some sense where you can say, yeah, yeah, we got this. You've been telling us this for a while. You, you, several weeks ago, you told us how terrible we were. We're horrible, horrible people, and there's nothing good about us. And then you tell us we don't do anything good. We got it. We got it. Stop beating us up. Paul is so relentless in this because he knows as sinful people, we desperately want to come before God with our good works and say, look what I did. We're like children, right? How many times have you had kids that look what I can do? Look what I did. Look what I made. Look at it and praise me for what I've done for you. I always think it's funny how with kids, it's, they always like to, to bring up when they do something they're supposed to do anyway. I was real good today. You're supposed to be real good every day. We have to completely trust in God for our salvation. We cannot add anything to our faith. He is the, as scripture says, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. We are to discover and understand and cling to the grace of God. We sing, I think several weeks ago, or maybe, I don't remember when it was, we sang that hymn, Amazing Grace. You know the story of that hymn? John Newton, slave trader. We watched the movie not so long ago here as a, as a movie night, if you came and watched it, entitled Amazing Grace, about the, the life of William Wilberforce, but William Wilberforce's Man he went to, his father in the faith, was John Newton. This slave trader who, the, who, after he became a Christian, could not understand why God would give him grace because he, in such a deep and, a, and lasting way, mutilated the image of God in man. He treated the image of God as if it was not there. And yet he penned these words, 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because he understood it was not about what he did. If he brought his works, his works were evil. He brought nothing. Abraham brought nothing. Faith was credited to him. What does that mean? That's our second point, the crediting of righteousness. What does it mean that faith was credited or reckoned to him? How are wages normally given? If you work, if you put in the hours, as Dolly tells us, if you're working nine to five, you get what's yours, right? If you were to go to work this week, and at the end of the week, work week, your boss said, I'm not going to pay you this week, what would you say? Call HR. <laughs> Call HR. No way. That is mine by right. I work for it, and you will give it to me. And guess what? You would be justified in saying that, right? Because you work to, to earn a wage, and you should be given fair compensation. The employer owes it to you. It is not given freely. It is not given without compulsion. If you go to work this week and your employer doesn't pay you, guess what? You can force him to. There are avenues in which you can force an employer to pay you because he owes it to you. It is yours. But guess what? God is never obliged to give anything to what he has created. He does not owe us one cent. Nothing. We don't get to go before the heavenly courtroom and say, you owe this to me. And he says, no, I don't. You've done nothing for me. It's a gift. It's freely given. It's not a wage that is justly earned. And this just ate at the Jewish community that Paul was talking to. They did not like this. It ate at the... No. No, Paul. I go to the temple. I give my tithe. I sacrifice what I need to sacrifice. I follow all the laws in the actual Bible and all the ones that they've created for me. I'm doing everything I need to do. No. He owes me something. Look at Abraham. He, he, he had righteousness that his faith was credited as righteousness. His obedience was rewarded. Paul says no. His grace was an unmerited gift. This does not mean that Paul is in favor of complacent Christians He's not that he's unconcerned with the practice of our faith, but he's saying you do not depend on your works as you stand before God. God, in his graciousness, has given you a new status. One commentator says it 
this way. It is the person who believes in this God and who renounces any claim on God that his good works might exert, whose faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul's purpose is to show a faith that justifies apart from works. And he shows this by flipping this idea of crediting on its ear, and he points to Psalm 32. He quotes David, starting in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. You know what that word count there is? Credit. Reckon. He said it's not about what God owes you. That's not what it's about. It's about God coming and looking at what you've stole from him. So imagine now for a second, I hope this is not true of any of us, that we are stealing from our employer. Taking the theme of wages. At the end of the week, our employer comes to us and says, you've stole from me. You've sold a great sum from me. The course of a week, let's say $30,000. You've stole $30,000 this week. And God comes and says, I'm not going to count that against you. Now that seems large, right? Could you imagine if you stole $30,000 this week, you got caught stealing $30,000, and the person said, you know what, keep it. I'm not going to count that against you. And that is not even begin to put a splash in the bucket of what Jesus has done for us. We who are enemies, who are sinful in all ways, God comes and says in Christ, I look at your sins and I credit them not to you. Wow. Far too often we come meagerly before his throne going, hey, look, look what I did. Pat me on the head. Tell me I'm doing good. And it really is silliness when we understand the true reality as we come with our filthiness. And he says, I don't see it. I only see Jesus and what he has done for you. But that's not all. The filthiness just doesn't go away, does it? The filthiness just doesn't say, well, this is negated. The books have to be balanced, don't they? So where does that go? In a finite way, in in a not completely altogether uh, way, we could say it like this. The employer comes and says, look, I'm not going to credit that $30,000 to you, but not only that, I'm going to take $30,000 out of my own pocket. I'm going to put it back for you. But what Jesus does is so much greater because it cost him so much more because what, what it was at stake was the wrath of God. And he comes and he says, not only are you, am I going to give you my righteousness, but you, I'm going to take what you have done upon myself. 
Forgiveness of sins is a basic component of justification. Justification is forensic in nature. It's a judicial declaration where you are declared right. It's not that you are morally transformed. It's not that you're somehow better now. But your relationship with God has changed. He has acquitted you of all charges. You have been made right. Paul is harping on this because we easily overlook it. Faith is so important to the Christian life. And it's not always something that's easily seen or easily put forth. We continually feel like we have to make things right, that we have to fix it, that we can make it better, that in some way we can help the process along. But it's not about what is owed to us. It's not about a wage that we somehow earn. There's nothing that we can do to manipulate God into owing us something. He owes us nothing. Everything that we have is filthy. And it's only through the gracious act of God that we have hope. We must turn to him, rely on him, And as Paul closes out our section today, he points back once again to Abraham. And he says, Abraham was given a sign of righteousness, not a sign that he earned, but a sign that was freely given. And he begins to talk about circumcision. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents. (laughs) He talks about those who are circumcised and those who are uncircumcised. How does one become part of the family of Abraham? Who all is included in his inheritance? And so we ask, well, how was, how was this faith reckoned to Abraham? When he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Now, most of us, if we don't think about it, we go, well, of course he was circumcised, right? He was the father of Israel. But actually, when faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, he was not circumcised. In fact, it would be some 20 to 27 years later that he would actually be circumcised. Circumcision comes later as a sign of the reality that had already been taken place. It was a sign of the covenant made with Abraham. This sign has its source in the justification that he was given by faith. The circumcision confirms this righteous status. But it doesn't make this righteous status a reality. It has no independent value. Nothing changed for Abraham just because he was circumcised. It doesn't affect a person's entrance into the people of God. It does not mark a person as belonging To the true people of God. Paul argues because 
Abraham is who he was because he was declared righteous while still being uncircumcised. Because he was still righteous even when he was circumcised, he is the father of all. Inheritance, the inheritance of Abraham then is for all people, both Jew and Gentile. It comes through faith alone. So now all who are in Christ are the spiritual children of Abraham. So we can sing that song rightly, even in the church today. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. That's true. We are those who have inherited the promise given to Abraham. When, when Jesus, God said to Abraham, your sons will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. They'll be no, more numerous than the sands on a beach. We are the fulfillment of that promise. We are his heirs. God has come for all people. None are excluded. And he still is giving us a sign to mark us out. Guess what? Your baptism doesn't save you. No more than circumcision saved Abraham. It is an external sign of an inward reality. As we come to this table, as we see the signs of what Jesus has done for us, his body and his bread, guess what? They don't make you more redeemed in some way. They are not instrumental in saving you. They are a sign of the reality of what Christ has done for us. They seal his promises. This is the language we see in the confession that baptism, the, the, the sacraments, they are signs and seals saying, you are mine. The promises that I have given you are true. And so we trust in him. We rely on him. We understand that the blood of Christ has washed us. They have made us clean. That we have been counted in the people of God. But we are not greater than Abraham. We are not greater than Abraham. We are not in some way better than Abraham in that we have found a way to earn righteousness. We can't do it. We absolutely cannot do it. Just like Abraham, the, our righteousness is not of our own doing. It's a free gift. It's credited to us. It's reckoned to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But he has given it to us. Do you know the wonderful reality of the gospel? Do you know in your heart that you are, as Paul said, the chief of sinners? That you are wretched, 
people. And that Jesus comes in and says, even though you're wretched, I love you. And I am making reconciliation possible for you. And all you have to do is come and believe. Nothing else. As you believe, you are given his righteousness freely. This is the wonderful reality of the gospel. Stop beating yourself up. Stop trying to do enough good things. Stop trying to help enough people. Do those things. Yes, they're good and they're right and they're, they're, they're needed. But it's not how you get into heaven. It's not how you make yourself right before God. We come empty. All people. We come freely. Or we come before him and he freely gives to us. And in response, we freely go and we serve him and his kingdom, relying not on ourselves, submitting to him in all things, trusting in him in all things. Would this wonderful, beautiful truth go forth in our life? How do you think you would respond if tomorrow you went into work and that employer did exactly as we talked about? How do you think you would respond to that employer from then on out? He just saved you from a terrible situation. You think you might wear yourself out doing what you need to do for him? The analogy fails in that we might try to wear ourselves out because we feel guilty. But in Christ, we don't wear ourselves out because we feel guilty. We wear ourselves out because we are grateful. Because we know we have a new status. And we go forth and serve him. Would this be the reality of our vision as we see our position before God? Would we see it rightly? Would we understand what is true for us, even as we come to this table, let us come with a, a proper understanding. We come with empty hands. We come with nothing. And Christ gives us everything. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, would you help us to get out of our own way and would we fully depend and rely on you who has credited the righteousness of Christ to us and has credited our sinfulness to Christ on the cross. Thank you that you have indeed covered our sins. Would we rest and trust in this truth? We pray in his holy name. Amen.